0: Hey everyone, I am excited to announce that Esther, Something Hidden, Something Revealed, is now available on Amazon as a side study, Volume H, in the Gospel Feast series. The Book of Esther is a mysterious one. As written, it is a book with many contradictions. The name Esther means something hidden. It does contain several historical conundrums and a handful of mysteries. It is the only book in the Bible that never mentions God at all. Why? Many Jews today say that it is just fiction, because they can't find any of the characters mentioned within historically. And yet, they celebrate the book with a major festival annually. It is also one of the books that is required reading in the weeks before Passover, every year. Not by God, but by Esther herself. Why do this if you insist the book is just fiction? It is one of the only books that Joseph Smith made no corrections to, although he considered it to be historical. How is any of this possible? Esther reads as an eyewitness account, but then struggles with the simple, logical issues and frequently contradicts itself in some very strange ways. How come? Considering that Esther became the most powerful queen of the world's largest empire, none of this makes any sense. Or does it? Despite the wonderful story, we are left with the puzzling questions Who was King Ahasuerus? Who was Mordecai? Who was Haman? And actually, who was Esther? The answers may just surprise you. The book is not fiction. And in fact, all of the puzzling contradictions were put in place for a very devious reason, and not by Esther. Join us on this astounding historical reconstruction and be amazed at what Esther really tried to do. And how, had she been able to accomplish what she had tried, your life would be very different right now. You think you know the book of Esther? Are you sure? Let's feast on the Word of God together and see what a woman of God can do When she really puts her mind to it, it also might make an incredible Mother's Day gift for the ladies in your life. Happy Mother's Day.
1: This is the Gospel Feast for those who want a little meat after their milk. It's time to feast on the Word. (laughs) Welcome back to this Gospel Feast series for those that need a little meat after their milk. And we've had some meat. In our last set of episodes, we went through the vision of Daniel, the the last culminating vision, and discovered that it contained some astonishing detail on what would happen to the earth from Daniel's time right up until modern times. In exploring that amazing vision, we only just touched on some specifics that Daniel had given about the Messiah. So, let's get in and explore that part now.
0: We've had some wonderful journeys building it up and seeing some of his amazing visions, and now we're really getting into the meat of it. So, I guess we've had some milk and we've had some meat, but now we're beginning to really feast.
1: This is the most comprehensive vision given to Daniel, and yet we never seem
0: to study this one in church. So, Let's get into this now. Isaac Newton's entire point about the book of Daniel being so important to Christianity really starts to culminate in this particular episode that we're talking now. Because the Lord had pulled down Israel, and because the prophets had in a sense been neutered, and certainly in the case of Daniel actually castrated, and the high priest like Ezekiel and some of the other men had been through such terrible things, the Lord had been true to his promise to Amos to tell his prophets what was going on. And one of the ways he proved this was here in the book of Daniel. By giving Daniel the world history, basically through the entire captivity of Israel and through the entire Gentile control of their civil and civic lives, he here gave the world the history of what would happen, and it proved that he was in charge. We already saw how he pulled down Israel, and then he let Babylon rule them for a while, and he told his prophets this beforehand. He let Persia rule them for a while, and he foretold that to his prophets. He let Greece rule them for a while, and he foretold that. And then Rome, and then what we call New Rome, or Europe, ruled the Jews. Up to what was called the time of the end in the book of Daniel. The time of the end means the time of the end of the Gentile rule over the house of Israel. And this culminated with the removal of the pope who stood as the leader of New Rome, just as we had Nebuchadnezzar, just as we had Darius and Xerxes, just as we had Alexander the Great, and just as we had the Caesars, we had the Pope as the leader and the head of the New Rome. Napoleon brought him down and opened the way for the Father to begin his marvelous work. So we will have to come back to that, but we want to take a step back and we want to look at the specific parts of the Messiah. We had jumped over it, only touching on it briefly, because we wanted to spend an entire episode on just what Daniel says about Jesus Christ. What is not clear today, but was known anciently, is that the Jews of Jesus' day understood more of Daniel than we do. They realized that Daniel was setting them up to give them the time of when the Messiah would appear, and in Jesus' time, they knew that it was in their day. The question of how to read Daniel 7 was very much on the minds of the Jews in Jesus' day, particularly the part that said, And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. Okay, we have been on an amazing journey so far, one where we have seen the immense power of Almighty God, and we have seen his ability to rule the nations either through his chosen house or via others given stewardship for a season of his choosing. We now come in our study to the controversial figure of the Messiah, Bible readers may be shocked to discover that the word Messiah only appears in two verses of the Old Testament. Oh my, that is interesting. Both are in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, verses 25 and 26. As a coming national figure, allusion to this holy prince is everywhere, but his title, the Messiah, which means the anointed, and which in Greek is the Christ, can only be found in Daniel. Here it is daniel nine twenty five and twenty six know therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem unto Messiah the prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks, the streets shall be built again, and the wall even in troublous times and after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself, and the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood. And unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. In the last few years, an increasing amount of research is coming out on the ancient view of the Messiah. Jewish and Christian scholars are finally coming together to better understand our common heritage, even if we debate the conclusions. Christianity grew out of Judaism, and some of Judaism's more eclectic practices only make sense through the lens of Christianity. With the rise of the common threat of Islam on these two more ancient religions, Both have come closer together in friendship. Even if Jews and Christians disagree on the nature of Jesus Christ, we are starting to see our common cultural values and goals as reasons to unite in friendship and scholarship. It's okay to agree to disagree. One of the more surprising discoveries of late is the depth of Messiah fever that existed in Judea at the time of Jesus. The Jews have always been an educated people. Jehovah had commanded them to read and study the Law and the Prophets. As such, they had a form of public school long before it was fashionable where their children were taught. Women were taught to read and write in Israel. The people knew their scriptures, and they knew the book of Daniel. A fascinating exploration is to read the gospel through the lens of Daniel. When one does, it quickly becomes apparent that Jesus was leaning on this book as a common core to which to explain his ministry. Hence, Isaac Newton's Insight. A few examples will suffice for the whole. One of the particular titles given to Jesus was the oft-spoken Son of Man. It had a companion title in the phrase Son of David. Christians believe the Son of Man referred to Jesus' humanity through his mother, while Son of David referred to his divine role as King of Kings. Recent discoveries have shown that the opposite is actually true. Son of David in Jesus' day referred to the Messiah's royal lineage— as a human son. In the case of Jesus of Bethlehem, it was his claim upon the throne of David through his mother Mary, while son of man was the divine term. This seems oddly backwards until one understands Daniel chapter 7. Peter, would you read this for us? I like your voice. Daniel 7, 9 through 14.
1: I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. I beheld then, because of the voice of the great words which the horn spoke, I beheld even till the beast was slain, and his body destroyed, and given to the burning flame. As concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and time. I saw in the night visions, and beheld, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given unto him dominion, and glory, and a kingdom, that all people Nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which
0: shall not be destroyed. Many in Jewry believed that this Ancient of Days was God, although closer study will show that this doesn't make any sense. Joseph Smith taught that this ancient and holy man was actually Father Adam, hence the title Ancient of Days. Adam, being the first man, is the oldest of all men and therefore the most ancient of days. Coming to this ancient man is one so glorious and godlike that he is called the Son of Man. Some of the Jews in Jesus' day were hoping that Jesus was this divine Son of Man, this second Adam, if you will. Ah. In restored Christianity, this new understanding is merely faith-affirming. As early as the winter of 1830, Joseph Smith was given the following revelation, which he claimed was a restoration of a much older revelation, that was given to Moses. Listen to this. Wherefore, teach it unto your children, that all men everywhere must repent, or they can in no wise inherit the kingdom of God. For no unclean thing can dwell there, or dwell in his presence. For in the language of Adam, man of holiness is his name, and the name of his only begotten is the Son of Man, even Jesus Christ." a righteous judge who shall come in the meridian of time. Modern prophets are cool things to have around. They know stuff and share stuff when people will listen to them. Every time that Jesus was called Son of Man, it was the people calling out to him in hopes that he was the promised Messiah, divine and godly, as Daniel foretold. The word Christ, which Christians add to his name today, is simply the Greek word for the Hebrew Messiah, which means here the anointed prince. Another example before moving on. As a wedding gift to the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai, Jehovah had promised that they would be free from disease if they would be true to his commandments. Sickness in the nation, therefore, was seen as a continual reminder that they had not been true to their God and husband. With this in mind, recall the following story from the life of our Lord as found in Mark. This is Mark 2, and let's do 1 and 2. And again, Jesus entered into Capernaum after some days. And it was noised that he was in the house. And straightway many were gathered together, insomuch that there was no room to receive them, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. Okay, now Jesus' preaching was gaining so much attention that people were crowding all about the house to hear him. That's what this is saying. So much so that there was no room for any more people. Okay, verse 3. And they came unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. Four people are carrying him could not come nigh unto him for the press. They couldn't get into the house. There's too many people. They uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. So it's really kind of funny. The sick man's friends were so determined to get him to Jesus that they tore open the roof so as to lower the sick man on his bed inside. It is assumed that this was Simon Peter's house. Poor Peter is getting his roof torn up. Verse five. When Jesus saw their faith... He said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Okay, now note what happens. It is always faith that saves a man. But, double note, the more shocking statement. Only God can forgive sins. The people were prepared for Jesus to be a prophet, but a forgiver of sins? He dared to simply declare them gone, without animal sacrifice? This was an entirely new thing in Israel and if said incorrectly, was blasphemous under Moses' law. Just who is this man, the people started to wonder. Verse 6. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there, and reasoning in their hearts, Why doth this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Ah, don't you love Jesus? He even knows what they're thinking in their hearts. As the learned in the law were pondering on Jesus' apparent blasphemy, the Lord challenged their thoughts openly. Whether is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee? Or to say, Arise, and take up thy bed, and walk? Now this is a fascinating challenge. The scribes believed that Jesus had done nothing more than declare the man forgiven. This was blasphemy unless pronounced by God. It was something intangible to others. Even now, Only the one forgiven knows in his heart if he has the peace of God's grace within or not. Only God can truly judge this. Jesus, however, was about to give them something they could perceive, a paralyzed man walking again. This was also a cultural slap. There should have been no palsy in Israel. Had the Israelites been true to their marriage covenant with him, there would have been no sickness. Thus, in true Jewish thinking, sin and disease are one. Now listen to verse 10. But that ye might know that the Son of Man, that's the Messiah term, that ye might know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. He saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, and take up thy bed, and go thy way unto thine house. And immediately the man arose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. Israel had been blessed with holy men from time to time, but truly they had never seen one claiming the divine title Son of Man. This again is from Daniel, who could both forgive sins and heal the body by his own command. Note it well. Jesus said, I say unto thee, I am the Son of Man. There was great excitement in Judea over the expected arrival of the Son of Man. We now know that many who understood Daniel's timetable were watching for the Messiah to appear, just as Daniel had foretold. Try for a moment and think like a Jew of Jesus' day. The great excitement included the following promises. This Messiah would end transgression and sin through reconciliation via everlasting righteousness. This great atoning one, for the first time called Messiah, would be a royal prince, meaning He would be a descendant of the beloved King David. This Messiah would be cut off from the land of the living. In other words, he would die or be killed. This Messiah's death would not be for himself. But prior to his death, he would confirm the ancient covenant of the house of Israel, meaning Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob with the people. But now note the remaining part, Daniel 9.27. Peter, read that one for us.
1: And he, the Messiah, shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate.
0: And for the overspreading of abomination he shall make it desolate." These are really important words because you're going to remember in Daniel's previous vision, it was talk about the abomination of desolation and that some of these things would happen at a certain time. Again, a lot of Christianity does not understand these verses. They think that they are connected to Greek history. They are not. Note, midway through his mission, the Messiah would end the Jewish religion. That's what Daniel says. This Messiah would also bring about a terrible desolation on the nation. In order that abomination might be made complete. This abomination would be so final as to be the complete destruction of the Jewish way of life in their promised land. Okay, take a moment and let the full weight of these few verses sink in you. They are often misunderstood. If you are not shocked by this, you are not thinking Jewish enough. How long has the Jewish nation waited for the Messiah? How long have they petitioned God to send him? Despite their hopes for his glorious appearance, Just what did they expect the Messiah to do when he arrived? The answer most often given is to reestablish the political and religious power of the House of Israel. Christians teach that the reason the ancient Jews missed the Savior when he came was because they were searching for a political leader, a great king, to save them from Roman power. Where did they get this idea? A simple reading and the only book in the Old Testament to actually use the term Messiah says none of these things. Daniel's Messiah would confirm the covenant Jehovah made with the Jews and Israel at Sinai and then be killed, but not for himself, but to bring about righteousness for others and then destroy the Jewish culture. This is what Daniel says. And it may be the book of Daniel that answers another mystery, one still celebrated each December at Christmas time. Oh, a Christmas mystery? I'm intrigued. Who sent the Magi? Ah, Each Christmas season, nativities throughout the Christian world retell the birth of Jesus Christ. There is recounted the angelic choirs and the announcement to the shepherds that the Lamb of God had been born. More curious, however, is the account of the Magi, coming from the East, bearing gifts with foreknowledge that the rightful heir to the throne of David had been born. We are too quick in our modern world to read and accept all things simply. Knowledge from on high comes through feasting on the Word. And I believe a better translation here would be savoring the word and meditating on its meaning. So let's do it. How is it possible that pagan magi from the East knew more about the exact coming birth of Jesus Christ than the Jews entrusted with the Holy Scripture? The answer can only be found in meditation on the account. First, we know these men were magi. Second, we know they were from the East. East of Jerusalem is Babylon which was the home of the Magi. The greatest of all the Magi is the name we also know, Belteshazzar, the chief Magi. Belteshazzar means master of wisdom. The name of whom Jehovah himself would say, no prophet was smarter and no secrets were hid from him. This chief Magi was, of course, Daniel. The Magi are also known as the wise men. We have already seen that Daniel had access to the precise calendar of God's plan for Israel. Daniel is the only prophet to openly declare the exact times and titles of the Messiah. He may have even coined the term as far as we know. It is no stretch of the imagination to say that Daniel knew, if not the exact time of Jesus' birth, then close enough to have prepared a royal birthday present for him. Daniel was greatly loved of the Lord, and Daniel greatly loved him back. It is my speculation that Daniel commanded his magi through the centuries to watch for a particular time, when the signs in the heavens were correct, that they were to deliver a gift of love to the infant king of the Jews. And what did Daniel, a royal prince himself, send to his royal kin and redeemer? A gift only a prophet with knowledge could understand. A gift that still puzzles biblical students today. The perfect gift for a king and God and sacrifice. It was the gift from one prince to another. First gold, the highly prized gift of kings, the middle of power and might, a gift I am sure was much appreciated by a humble carpenter who needed to flee at night and set up a temporary home in Egypt. Frankincense, an incense for priests made from the resin of balsam trees. It was also highly prized in ancient Israel and Egypt. Another perfect gift to give one who would be our great high priest fulfilling the role of Melchizedek on high, a firstborn son after the order of God himself. And myrrh. Considered by Hebrews to be one of the most precious of plant products, it was used in the holy oil needed to anoint the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, the altar of God, and the sacred vessels of the temple. All of those are symbolic of Jesus. It was also used in embalming and death rituals, another far too perfect cultural gift to present to the physical embodiment of all this holiness, the temple and sacrifice made flesh. These gifts were a love letter written by Daniel to his Savior yet unborn. There is no other explanation.
1: This is wonderful. I hope all those that are listening are enjoying this as much as I am. Let's continue our feast.
0: As Jesus began his ministry among the Jews, there was much whispering about what made him special. Some argued that he was a prophet, or possibly even Elijah returned before the great and terrible day of the Lord. The Lord straightened out some of this confusion when asked by the pure and humble, but had little time for the haughty and arrogant who merely wanted to challenge or demean him. John the Beloved and Andrew Barjona heard the Baptists' declaration of Jesus and quickly told Andrew's brother Simon, who was renamed Peter, that they had found the Messiah. Later, Jesus would have a very humorous and witty conversation with a Samaritan prostitute who would remind him that the Messiah was coming. It was fascinating to see the connection between the Messiah and the events surrounding him. Let's look at it.
1: Now this is from John chapter 4, and we'll start with verse 21. Jesus said unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh, when ye shall neither in this mountain, nor yet at Jerusalem, worship the Father. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will teach us all things." Jesus
0: saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. The only place that this connection can be made is in the writings of Daniel. Make no mistake, much of the national fervor at the time was in regards to the expectation that the Messiah would come sometime during the administration of Rome. But when, who, and how was the big question. John the Baptist was the legal authority of Aaron in the priesthood. And he made his choice, and when snooty elders were challenging Jesus, he was quick to remind them that the Baptist had chosen him. This is hugely important, and we'll talk about it more in Volume 4 of Zechariah, if you want to read it there, or if we get to do that in our feast. It was, and still is, a conundrum to Jewry. Why did John choose Jesus? So, read. we definitely want to know the answer to the question,
1: why did John the Baptist choose Jesus? So we've seen that the very term Messiah is connected specifically to the book of Daniel. Reed told us that many great early rabbis actually forbid their pupils from studying Daniel with the goal of discovering the times of the Messiah. (laughs) Now we can see why. In rejecting Jesus of Nazareth as their national lamb, then they had to set aside Daniel no wonder Isaac Newton was so interested in it. We will need to stop here though as we are out of time. We just want to remind everyone our podcasts are not reviewed by anyone um, or commissioned or endorsed by any religion this is this is our understanding the gospel and we welcome uh, questions and comments as we study the gospel together. Now going forward in honor of Eastern thinking, we have decided that every seventh episode, we consider a sabbatical episode. So the next one being the next seventh, uh, we invite listeners to send in questions and uh, we will endeavor to answer them. And until then, may the Lord Jesus Christ continue to be with all of you. <music>